bless your name in the highest. And we thank you, O Lord, for the joy that is ours, truly, as your people, to gather in such an assembly as this is with the great single purpose to worship our great eternal triune God, Holy Father, Holy Son, and Holy Spirit. And Father, as we open up your holy scriptures, to hear them read, to hear them taught, to hear them proclaimed, we pray earnestly that the Holy Spirit would accompany the delivery of your word and the hearing thereof that we would, as your saints in Christ Jesus, our Lord, be even more deeply sanctified by the truth of your holy word, that our eyes would be open to behold wondrous things out of your word, and we would leave this night changed. This we ask for the sake and the honor and for the praise and the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, I invite you to take God's word and let us open up to Proverbs chapter 18. Proverbs chapter 18. Reading one verse, verse 12. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Let's read that once more. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. So reads the inerrant, the infallible word of the living, eternal God. This evening, we return to our present series in Proverbs, where at the moment we're considering the stark contrast between the sin of pride and the grace of humility. Last week, we took our time looking at what the book of Proverbs teaches us about the sin of pride. We saw that the meaning of the term itself is used in the Old Testament comes from a Hebrew word that carries the idea of haughtiness, presumption, arrogance, and insolence. It is thus having an exaggerated view of one's self whereby you think more highly of yourself than what you should think. And where this plays into application with other people is in how a prideful person is deluded into believing they're better than everyone around them. 
This therefore makes them unteachable since they know it all. But out of this arrogance, they're also ready in a moment to fight anyone who doesn't agree with their assertions about everything they believe is right or wrong. A prideful person then is always a pugnacious person. They're given to belligerence, combativeness, and an ill temper. This is why Proverbs 13 and verse 10 tells us that by insolence comes nothing but strife. There is no peace with someone full of pride. A fight is always pending at any moment with such a sinner like this. Furthermore, not only do they always have their fists clenched at everyone around them, but they even bow out their chest at God thinking that their life's destiny is determined entirely by their own decision. Proverbs 27 verse 1 warns us against boasting about tomorrow since we haven't got a clue as to what tomorrow will bring. But to the prideful sinner who thinks he knows everything, then when it comes to his future, he believes it's all in his control rather than in the works of God's divine providence. Whatever he decides then about his future is what he really believes is going to happen. This is how the prideful think. So he thereby denies the truth and reality of God's absolute sovereignty, which rules over all things and thus determines what will happen as the first cause of everything that comes to pass. The prideful person denies this, and by so denying this truth and this reality about God, they are in essence a practical atheist. But before God, what is the outcome of such a sinner like this? How does God treat the prideful sinner? We answer this question in five different ways from our study last week. First, from Proverbs 6, 16 and 17, God hates the sin of pride. He hates the haughty eyes. And as we saw last week, this is at the very top of God's hate list. This is at the top of his hate list. He hates the haughty eyes. Second, God will tear down the house of the proud, as Proverbs 15, 25 clearly says. Third, the prideful are an abomination to God. Proverbs 16 and verse 5, by an abomination, they are absolutely repulsive to God. The word abomination, if you remember from last week, we learned that term means to turn the stomach. So we could say, in our own vernacular, it nauseates God, the sin of pride. Fourth, the ways of the prideful will bring them nothing but disgrace, according to Proverbs 11 and verse 2. And by this, this is a social disgrace. A social disgrace. A very public reproach is what pride will bring. And fifth, the inevitable outcome of the prideful sinner, according to Proverbs 16 and verse 18, is total ruin and destruction. There is nothing good, therefore, that comes from the sin of pride. The wages it pays is always disaster. So then, for us as God's people, 
we must fight hard against this sin which we all must struggle against to some level in the flesh. Though we are redeemed by grace and indwelt by the Spirit, yet, according to Romans 6 and 7, we still harbor the awful reality of remaining sin in our members. So there is still a battle we have to undertake against the sin of pride in whatever way it shows itself in our thoughts or words or deeds. This sin must be mortified in all of us by the power of the Holy Spirit. But in such a pursuit to put to death the sin of pride, we must also devote ourselves to putting on the grace of humility. And this brings us to the focus of our study tonight in the book of Proverbs, what I'm calling humility's honor. Humility's honor. Reading again Proverbs 18 and verse 12, Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Humility comes before honor. It should go without saying that when God's word bespeaks of humility, as here in Proverbs 18 and verse 12, it is referring to that disposition which is the complete opposite of pride. The Hebrew word translated as humility is rooted in a term that means to be bowed down. Used in both a religious and ethical sense, it refers to a character quality of renouncing one's own personal sufficiency for life and committing one's self to the Lord who alone is worthy of all our trust and whose wisdom alone is trustworthy to guide us in all our ways. This means that the practical logic of how the grace of humility thinks is in this way. I did not create myself. I did not choose my ethnicity, hair color, height, gender, or IQ. What is more, I cannot change the fundamental characteristics I was given. How then can I ever congratulate myself for how smart or handsome or beautiful or talented, rich, etc. that I am? To do so is absurd in the extreme. God alone made me. God alone sustains me. What this shows us biblically is that the grace of humility works in our hearts by sanctifying us with an honest estimation of who we are. It is what Romans 12 and verse 3 describes as thinking with sober judgment. This term sober judgment is derived from a Greek verb that means to be reasonable, to be sensible, to keep the proper measure, not going beyond the set boundaries. In other words, it is to be humble. It is to be humble. True God-given spirit-wrought humility, therefore, is thinking rightly about ourselves, recognizing our limits, and recognizing our proper place in the home, in the church, in the community at large where God has called us and equipped us to make much of Him. Or, to say it another way, by the grace of humility, we realize the truth of who we really are by God's grace. 
Think of how the Apostle Paul worked this out in his own spiritual autobiography as he testified in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 9 and 10. This is a passage that many of us should be very familiar with. Paul writes of himself, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Now, why would Paul feel that way about himself? Why would he say that? Well, notice what he, what he writes. He says, because I persecuted the church of God. He never got over that. He never got beyond that. Okay? He, never, he, he never just went past that and never thought about it again. No. He always felt the disgrace and the reproach of that. But then notice what he says. Verse 10. But by the grace of God... I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, talking about the rest of the apostles. Now, if he just stopped there, it might sound like, well, now wait a minute, Paul, you've gone from humility to boasting. But look at what he says. Though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Who's getting the credit, really? Paul is not taking the credit. He's giving all the credit to God. I am what I am by the grace of God. But when considering the grace of humility further and considering it as seen in the book of Proverbs, how... Do we see in the book of Proverbs this grace worked out? Well, there are two ways in which humility is highlighted, both directly and indirectly. In the first place, directly. The grace of humility is always seen by a teachable spirit. A teachable spirit. Proverbs 11 and verse 2 tells us that with the humble is wisdom. But this wisdom, according to Proverbs 13, verse 10, comes with those who take advice. Unlike the prideful who think and act as if they know it all and thereby never seek the counsel of others since they're unteachable. Yet with the humble, they modestly recognize their limited knowledge and thus allow themselves to be led in a better path, whether by correction or encouragement this means that with the humble you'll find someone who follows the wisdom of proverbs 11 14 15 22 20 in verse 18 and 24 in verse 6 all of which say that in an abundance of counselors there is safety success and victory it is the prideful who isolate themselves with their own ideas and opinions, and thus rage against all sound wisdom, as Proverbs 18 and verse 1 testifies, but not with the humble. Not with the humble. By the grace of humility, God's people, according to James 3.17, are always open to reason. Always ready to listen. 
and give heed to the wisdom God provides by God-fearing believers who follow God's word. The driving point is that the humble are always teachable. They never believe they have arrived and are thus beyond the scope of learning and growing further as a believer in Christ. In the second place, indirectly, the grace of humility is always seen by trusting the Lord and not man as to one's life in the whole. Trusting the Lord and not man as to one's life in the whole. This is the implication of Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. How often do you hear these verses quoted without verse 7? Without verse 7. We're always quoting verses 5 and 6, but never verse 7. Because verse 7 is tying us back into do not lean on your own understanding. In other words, don't be wise in your own eyes. It is only out of the grace of humility that we trust the Lord with all our heart, leaning no weight at all on our own understanding. This is because with humility, we see how fallible and flawed and fallen our own understanding is in any given situation. Our trust then will fix itself always with exclusive confidence on the Lord alone to mark out the way in which we should go. If we're walking in humility then, we will confess with Jeremiah 10.23, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Despite how many plans we make in the course of our life, if we're clothed with humility, then we'll always be conscious that it is God who orders our paths. This means that we'll always affirm the truth of Proverbs 16 and verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. What does that mean? No matter what we arrange in our hearts to do, without God's divine intervention, our plans will come to nothing. The answer of the, the, answer of the tongue is from the Lord. So the humble heart of the godly understand this and count on it by their wholehearted trust in the Lord. Which means that they also affirm Proverbs 16 and verse 9. Proverbs 16 and verse 9, which says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And then there's the amazing affirmation of Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 24. 
a man's steps are from the Lord, how then can man understand his way? Obviously, what that text of Scripture is bespeaking to is even more the truth that whatsoever comes to pass, God is the first cause. God is the first cause. Psalm 139, verse 16, David confesses with joy to the Lord that every day of his life was already written in God's book before a single one of those days ever existed. So, therefore, Solomon says, a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? This is why it is out of humility then that God's people say of their plans, if the Lord, what? Wills. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And you see the reference there, that's coming directly from James 4, 15. Because the passage in James chapter 4 is echoing exactly what we are reading here in the book of Proverbs. In fact, so much of James' epistle sounds proverbial. But in James 4, verses 13 and following, James exhorts us. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. That's just an echo of Proverbs 27, verse 1, right? Do not boast about tomorrow because you don't know what tomorrow will bring. James goes on. He says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. What kind of boasting? The boasting of saying, well, I'm going to make this plan, and I'm going to do this, and this is where I'm going to be in so many years, and I'm going to be making this much money, and on and on and on and on it goes. And brothers and sisters, you and I don't have a clue about tomorrow. We make our plans, and there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing at all. We should be making plans. But every plan we make about our future, as a Christian, you had better be qualifying all those plans with if the Lord wills. Because let us not forget what... Job was sobered to, uh, <laughs> to realize in just one day after losing all of his children 
and all of his property in one day. Job said, the Lord gives, and the Lord also does what? Takes away. But then, of course, Job finished that confession with, blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, building on this truth, it is from humility, therefore, that God's people refrain from making haste with their feet, as Proverbs 19 and verse 2 admonishes us against. This means there is nothing impetuous about humility because it is in humility that we learn that trusting the Lord involves waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord to do what? Well, Daniel 2.21, to change times and seasons. Waiting on the Lord to also, according to Revelation 3.7, to open and close doors. So that His will is more clearly seen and discerned and the path we must take becomes more visible. You see, it is only in pride in pride that we foolishly act without first seeking God's will. And for those whose natural temperament is all action, is totally goal-oriented, these Christians tend to say to themselves, well, I'll act first and then ask forgiveness later. Have you ever heard that? I've heard that. I'm going to go ahead and do this where, in other words, I don't have the time to pray. I don't have the time to wait on the Lord. I'm just going to do it. Do what I have determined in my heart to do what I believe, what I believe, here's the pride, what I believe is the right plan. And, well, if it turns out that I have missed, that I have missed God, as it were, that I have misapplied this, or worse, I've sinned, well, then I'll just ask forgiveness later. No, 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 no. No Christian should dare act that way. Regardless of what your natural temperament may be, how you're wired, this is where you mortify your temperament. With humility, we cast all our cares on the Lord and we trust Him for the outcome that He assures us in Proverbs 3, 6 will always be the right and good way. It is for this reason, then, that Proverbs 334, 1533, 22, verse 4, and 29, verse 23, each assure us that the Lord gives what to the humble? What does he give? Honor. He gives honor to the humble. That is, to his people who trust him with all their heart, 
remaining pliable to his instruction, refusing to be wise in their own eyes, God's response is to esteem them by showing them favor, which they were not even seeking. A great example of this is in the biblical account of David facing Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Humanly speaking, the odds were stacked against David from every corner. To begin with, he didn't have the support of his own family in this contest, but only their scorn, as he found in his brother Eliab. In addition to this, King Saul dismissed David by judging what only his eyes, that is Saul's eyes, could see, a young man with no experience in war facing an expert in warfare. And then, of course, once David went out into the valley to actually confront Goliath, this Philistine warrior mocked David with vicious contempt. But despite what David faced in the flesh, from Eliab, from Saul, from Goliath, despite what he faced in the flesh, he remained unmoved and unshaken. This is because all that mattered to David was that the honor of the Lord's name, reputation, and glory was being defied by both the fear of the Israelites and the arrogance of Goliath. All then that concerned David was reclaiming God's glory. That is the glory of his name. David, therefore had no concern for his own reputation. Furthermore, David's confidence to confront Goliath rested in what he knew God could do as opposed to man's ability. And herein we see David's humility. His humility first, as it is summarily expressed in 1 Samuel 17 and verse 37, when he declared to King Saul, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And then second, to Goliath himself, David asserted, and how bold this was, The Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. David stood before both the Israelites and the Philistines as a man who humbled himself, who humbled himself under God's mighty hand. And what was the result? God exalted David. By delivering his servant, not by sword or spear, but by the sufficient, omnipotent power of God. And by this divine deliverance, God honored David's humility. He honored David's humility before the Lord. So, in conclusion... Let's ask ourselves, 
Do we walk in humility before God and man? How consistent are we to put on humility as Colossians 3.12 actually commands us to do? Are we clothing ourselves with humility by the Spirit's power? If so, then we will first of all have a true assessment of who we really are before God and man. Unlike the Pharisee, for example, in Luke chapter 18, who thought he was better than everyone else and actually said as much to God in prayer. We, on the other hand, in humility, will be like the publican with head bowed, crying out to God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You notice I have that term, the, the definite article in brackets there. I'll tell you why. It's because when you read, when you read this in the English, the publican is saying, Be merciful to me, O God, a sinner. But from the original Greek, it's a definite article. The sinner. The sinner. So what is this saying? It's saying that we will not see ourselves in any other light but what God has said of us. That we are sinners saved by God's grace alone. Again, using Paul the Apostle as our example in 1 Timothy 1.15 Another passage of scripture that we are very familiar with. Paul writes and says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Do you notice what he's not saying there? He is not saying of whom I was the foremost. That's not past tense. It's present tense. Present tense. Again, <laughs> why would Paul say that? Well, just, just stay right here in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. Um, and look, look at verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. Again, Paul never got over, never got past what he was. What he was in Adam, under the dominion of sin, before Christ saved him. He did not just walk away from all that and saying, I'll never think about it again. No. It was in the light of thinking about what he was as a sinner 
preceding his conversion that gave him the true vision to see the magnitude of God's grace and mercy toward him. But even in this letter, which was written near the end of his life, he's saying that of all the sinners Christ Jesus came into the world to save, I'm number one. I'm at the top of the list of the worst of all. In fact, look, look at what he even says in verse 16. He says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, the foremost what? The foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, what Paul is saying there is, well, if Jesus can save a sinner like Paul, then he can save anybody. That's what he's saying. But the point we need to see in that, and the application for us is this, that like the publican and like Paul, we in humility, if we're truly walking in humility, we will see ourselves always in the light of how God sees us and what God says of us. And so, we will not then treat others as if we're better than they are in and of ourselves. But with humility, as Philippians 2 and verse 3 commands us, we will count others as more significant than ourselves. Do you think that takes grace? You can't do that without the grace of God. None of us can. None of us can. Because there's always someone in your life that without any effort, you're just going to look at them and say, well, I know I'm better than or I'm more significant than they are. But the grace of humility will not teach you to be that way. The grace of humility will teach you to say, they're more significant than me. You will count others as more significant than yourself. And in the light of this, we say, thank God, sanctification is a process and it's lifelong. But further, if clothed with humility, not only will we have a true assessment of ourselves, true estimation of ourselves, that is in how God actually sees us, but we will also be ever teachable. If we're clothed with humility, then we will be ever teachable. We will not think that we've arrived at a place where there is no more room to learn and grow as believers in Christ. With humility, we will have a keen sense of how incredibly limited our knowledge is and how fallible. We will not trust in only what we think is right or wrong. 
but we will submit ourselves to God's word as our guide in all things for faith and practice. Moreover, we will surround ourselves with wise, God-fearing saints who are more seasoned and illuminated than we are to help us in cultivating a more faithful walk with Christ. That is the teachable spirit of a humble heart. That is the teachable spirit of a humble heart. And lastly, if clothed with humility, we will trust God with the whole of our lives, believing the wisdom and perfection of his plan ordained for us. It's what Joseph believed and was convinced of when he said to his wicked brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. And then, of course, the grand promise that we love so much as believers, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. God's plan is perfect. Perfect in wisdom, perfect in love, perfect in power, in ordering every path and step of our life. And with humility, in the light of this perfect plan of God, we will learn to be content in whatever God has purposed to be the pathway that our lives will take. As the Apostle Paul testified of in his own life in Philippians 4.11, I have learned to be content in whatever situation I am in. And by the way, what situation was Paul in when he wrote that letter to the Philippian church? That's right. He was in prison. Prison. And yet he was content. He was content. He was not warring against God's purpose. He was not fighting against God's plan with fists clenched. No. No, he had learned to be content. This is how the grace of humility shows up in the heart and life of God's people. But does this grace mark our lives? That's the more searching question for all of us as Christians. Does this grace really mark our lives? Are we ever cultivating this fruit of the Spirit, which is humility? Remember, 
I left you with this last week, and I'll leave it with you tonight again. 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Reading verses 5, 5 and 6. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you. So that's not just to the younger, that's to all of the church. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter is... Echoing Proverbs 3.34 there. And then here comes the great exhortation, the great command. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. That's what we saw tonight in the example I gave you of David facing Goliath. David humbled himself under God's mighty hand. And God exalted David. God exalted David. But God exalted David by God making God's name great through David. It wasn't about David. It's about God. When we're walking in humility, when we are clothing ourselves with humility by the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit, these, beloved, are the things that matter the most to us as God's people. Everything else is secondary if even that let's pray our heavenly father earnestly lord we beseech you tonight for the furtherance of the holy spirit's work in all our hearts as your people to grow us, mature us, sanctify us in greater humility. In greater humility, Lord, before you, in greater humility before our fellow man. We pray, Father, that you will enlarge our hearts with a greater hatred toward the sin of pride that remains in us all. That we will learn by your word in spirit to hate that sin wherever we find it in ourselves and do all that we can by the Spirit's power to slay the sin of pride. But Lord, you not only have called us to pursue holiness, 
by putting off the deeds of the old man, but you have called us to pursue godliness by putting on the deeds of the new man. And one of those precious graces of the new man is that of Christ-like humility. And so we plead with you tonight, our great and holy God, in the name of our Lord Jesus, work in us all that we need and whatever that will take, that we will become a people of God who show more the humility, Lord, that you favor, that you honor, that gives you all the praise. We ask these things for the sake of our Lord Jesus. We pray them always and only in his name. Amen.